Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. As we wrap up 2023 with the last episode of the year, I wanted this replay to be a good one, and it definitely will be. This is an episode that I have referenced several times just in the last few months since it aired, including on one of the most recent episodes just two weeks ago about Amazon when Amazon filed a lawsuit against people involved in refund fraud. Because even though fraud detection technology for transaction fraud, account security, like new account fraud, account takeover, different types of you know deposit and withdrawal activity has improved over the years. Really, the only way to actually reduce the number of attempts against your company is to issue consequences to fraudsters, especially if you do a PR blitz around it like Amazon did. I've seen this work for several companies and I know it works, but just not enough companies do this. And it, it kind of drives me crazy. I'll just never understand why it's okay for an in-person store to have stickers in a dressing room that'll say something along the lines of, we prosecute shoplifters, but that most online companies, even if it's the same company as has those stickers in person within their stores online, it seems like they don't even try to prosecute fraud or theft cases for online fraud. And that's why it's grown so fast. That's why there's now fraud as a service. There's why It's why there's so much more fraud in the last three years than there ever was before, because there are more fraudsters, because they see there are low consequences. There are street gangs that have traded in drug trafficking for financial crimes because there are very little consequences. So I really want that to change. And StubHub, AOL, and Yahoo, and Amazon aren't the only companies who have identified so much added value from the strategy of tying together attempts and or losses to specific individuals or crime rings, and then sought prosecution through working with law enforcement. But they're the only ones who have been public about it, whether it's on this podcast or within other publications. I've yet to hear of any of these companies, though, that do have investigations departments. I've never heard them say, oh, it didn't provide more than 10x ROI, because it always does. Or our leadership is concerned about the message it sends. No, they're always like, oh, we're adding more people to this team because it's been so successful. So I asked my friend Eric Bowles, who is one of the best at building successful post-transaction investigations departments and programs for e-commerce, fintech, and or banking services, to join me on this episode. Uh, He's a former Secret Service agent, so he has strong relationships with law enforcement all across the world. And I asked him to join me for this specific episode for several reasons, but the main two were one, to share the success story of one of the investigations cases he led that led to international arrests and over seven figures in restitution to his former employer. The second reason I wanted him to join me is because Eric's role was recently eliminated due to a reduction in force at Yahoo. And I didn't want any of you to miss out on an opportunity to hire him to build a post-transaction or post-crime investigations program and provide similar results to your company. So with that, I'll let you listen in on uh, the first introduction that I did for this episode when it originally aired back in August of this year. And then you'll get to listen in on my conversation with Eric. And I know that it will not disappoint you. There's also some really fun stories about crimes that he's investigated and crazy stories as well. So I'll let you listen to it now. As I mentioned on last Thursday's episode, you guys are in for a real treat this week. My guest is Eric Bowles. Eric has a slightly different background and set of skills that are unique to the majority of us fraud fighters. But I really believe that we need a lot more Eric's in online fraud within e-commerce, marketplaces, fintechs, banks, financial institutions. So let me explain. Eric got his start in fighting cybercrime as a special agent for the U.S. Secret Service. 
There, he focused on financial and electronic crimes out of the San Francisco office. So lots of unique companies to work with and interesting cases to work on. He was then poached, kind of, by the head of trust and safety at StubHub then, Robert Capps. And if you want to hear the full story of how this came to be and a few examples of cool cases Eric worked on while at StubHub, when you're done with listening to this episode, go back and listen to episode 105 from June 20th of 2022, titled Bringing Real World Consequences to Cyber Criminals with both Robert Capps and Eric Bowles. I, even though I knew them both at the time and felt like I had a pretty good idea of what they were working on and the big things that they were accomplishing, while we were having the conversation for that podcast episode, I learned several things I didn't know before. The fact that often street gangs, sometimes rival street gangs, are working together on cyber fraud and so many other things. So if you didn't listen to that episode, I think we also replayed it in December because I just thought it was that good. So after building and leading a best-in-class e-crimes investigations team at StubHub over three and a half years, Eric was hired at Yahoo and AOL to lead their e-crime investigations team. He was there for the last seven years, so I think the company changed names at least three times during that time, but he stayed on and just think about all the very interesting cases that e-crimes investigations team would be working on over the last seven years for a media platform and email company. (laughs) You can only imagine. Most recently, he was the senior manager of e-crime investigations at Yahoo and AOL. And some of the cases that he and his team worked on, and he can't talk about all of them, but he, uh, talks about some of them, and I believe he'll be back soon to talk more about his time at Yahoo than he does on today's episode. But some of the things they worked on were unique, right, to an online media and email platform that's international. So things like ransomware, crypto crimes like pig butchering and other investment scams. Think about all the elections internationally that have happened in the last seven years that I'm sure he had to work, I know he had to work on so many scams and other things trying to utilize that platform, child endangerment cases, phishing, um, worked with law enforcement on cases involving child predators and terrorism and other violent crimes in the real world. So in my eyes, Eric is a real world superhero. And I know that he just rolled his eyes hearing that, but I don't care. It's something I probably wouldn't say to his face because we kind of have a brother sister relationship, as you'll hear a little bit in this episode. But I really do think, especially compared to me and what I've done, you know, as far as trying to prevent bad guys, and that is so important, but it just seems like actually catching the bad guys and being responsible for dozens of really, I don't want to say they're bad people, but they've made some very bad decisions, uh, not just in cybercrime, but in other crimes as well. And a lot of them are in jail because of him, which I can only say that I think one person went to jail because of me. And that was just because of my expert testimony and a court case, not because I investigated and built the case. So that's even more cool, I think. So I asked Eric to join me today for two reasons. One, ever since I met Eric in 2012, and I've kind of been on the sidelines, you know, as he's built what he did at StubHub and just learning about their massive success working with law enforcement domestically and internationally and how much it benefited their global trust and safety and fraud strategy. I've always wondered why more companies don't see the value. I mean, I understand and I've heard, you know, all kinds of reasons, right? It's hard to explain the ROI to have an investigations team after the transaction. There's not actually chargebacks that you can say that you saved or, you know, you can't look at a chargeback rate to see how much fraud you saved or anything like that. I've also heard we tried once and law enforcement didn't do anything, so we gave up. Or we don't know who to contact. Well, that's why I've asked Eric to speak at almost every conference where I was in charge of selecting the educational content, which was over the span of, I think, eight or nine years. So several uh, Merchant Risk Council conferences, and then when I was at cardnotpresent.com for their CMP Expo, and that lasted, I think, seven or eight years, and then uh, just due to the pandemic, it closed. But I've asked him to speak at so many conferences, and bless him, even one time he just flew into Orlando, spoke, and then flew out, and I wish I would have known that. I never would have asked him to do it, but he's just that nice of a guy, and his trainings and speeches are so good. I just He's a really good educator and really good trainer. 
But really, the reason why I've brought him in is in hopes that his methods for post-transaction investigations and advocating with law enforcement and prosecutors to actually prosecute and imprison the most prolific fraud rings would, I hope that it'd motivate other companies. I mean, when you're shopping in stores, which I know we don't all do that much anymore, but just think back to when you used to go to the mall a lot, maybe as a teenager or young adult, almost every dressing room mirror has a sticker that says, we will prosecute shoplifters. At least that's really common in North America. I don't know exactly how it is in other countries, but I do know there's still a couple of countries that will you know, literally cut someone's hand off if they're caught stealing. I'm not advocating for that. I'm just saying that in the real world, quote unquote, shoplifters are often prosecuted. And, you know, a sticker like that, that warns or just, you know, having articles in the newspaper and media saying this person was put in jail because they shoplifted is not only a great deterrent, but once shoplifters are caught, often the amount of thefted items at that store goes down because they're not trying to steal anymore. So that's the first reason that I wanted him to come on the podcast. But once you hear about the huge wins that Eric and his teams have had, not only in prosecuting some of the prolific fraud rings, but also financially and learn what's possible, I hope you'll reconsider only focusing on the front end and not looking at not only prosecuting, but also looking at all the data that can be tied together from a different perspective. You can get so much data for preventative fraud when you have a team looking at the overall fraud ring and not just one transaction at a time, but looking at how they're all connected and then diving in to try to figure out who it is and all of that. So it can also give you so much more rich data for the prevention side, even if you decide you don't want to prosecute. But I also think it's just really good brand protection when you you know show your customers that you don't let people steal from you, assuming that you, you know, put out a headline, which I highly recommend, but that's another story. So the second reason I asked Eric to join me on Fraudology today is because he was recently impacted by a reduction in force at Yahoo and AOL, which means he's available. He's interested in learning about opportunities for consulting engagements or full-time employment, as long as they can be remote, but he uh, is happy to travel. I feel like I'm a recruiter or something, but I am a friend who really wants to see my friend help another company the way he's helped Subhub and Yahoo in AOL. Eric is not only one of the best e-crimes investigators and leaders of investigations departments, he's also just a really good guy with a big heart for stopping bad guys. And he really does stop them. And we need all the help we can get on this side of fraud. So I really hope that Eric's superpowers aren't on pause for long. And that is why I wanted to help get the word out about his availability. If you even you know want to have him come into your office or do a virtual training, I am kind of adding that, but he really is great at that and has the best stories and is just really good at explaining investigations and working with law enforcement in a way that's easy to understand, as you'll hear in just a minute. So I'll put a link to his LinkedIn in the show notes, and I encourage you to at least connect with him. And if your company or a company you know of may be looking for someone with his skills and expertise, please reach out. And now I know you're really going to enjoy my conversation with my friend, Eric Bowles. Well, today I'm welcomed by a good friend, someone who I've known for, I don't know, probably at least three quarters of my career. Uh, I feel like we've grown up together in a way. And uh, Eric, you stopped by the podcast about a year ago uh, with our good friend, Robert Caps to talk about you know some of the glory days when you both worked together at StubHub. But I've been wanting to have you come back for a while. So welcome back to Fraudology, Eric. Thank you for having me again. Absolutely. I did, wasn't going to ask you what was up with the smile when I said I felt like we've grown up together, but I think that. <laughs> yeah, we, um, it was summer or fall of 2012. Yeah. Just after I had left the Secret Service and was brought on at StubHub to build out an investigations team. And we were up in Seattle for one of the MRC events. And that's when we met. Yeah. And that was the first, um, I had just been hired maybe a month um, full time to work for the MRC then. And I knew Robert a little bit from being a merchant, but um, yeah. So I really got to see the sidelines of uh, the amazing work that you guys did. And we're going to talk about, you know, that in a minute. And then, you know, obviously then you've gone on in your career and, and done other really great 
work for other companies. And I mean, one of the things that makes you so unique, uh, you know, aside from just, you know, your sparkling personality and everything else, I'm teasing you, but, um, you know, is not only your background, but your focus in fraud, because the majority of people that attend, you know, MRC conferences or that listen to this podcast or others are really focused on the prevention piece. And we know that that's important, but we also know that there's still, whether it is, you know, orders or transactions that are prevented, but still attempted, or, you know, they get through, well, then what? And you know, your background, like you said, you came from the Secret Service. And so I know that we talked about it a little bit last time you were on with Robert, but if you could just share a little bit about how, you know, the kind of the Cliff Notes version of how you got into this crazy world and then, you know, what, uh, what your focus has been the last 11 years in e-commerce. I joined the Secret Service in 2007 um, and I was based out of the San Francisco field office. Um, I worked both uh, on the Financial Crimes Task Force and then the Electronic Crimes Task Force. So um, I covered the whole gamut of um, that those types of frauds or intrusions. And uh, during that time, I had worked a, um, a case where StubHub was the victim. And that took about a year, year and a half to complete and bring to a successful prosecution. And then uh, a little time after that, that's when um, StubHub came to me and uh, asked if I'd be interested to build out their investigations team. And, you know, at that time, um, while, while they were building everything up on their trust and safety side, they were doing a lot of preventive measures and building out those that team and all the analysts and that type of thing. But they only had one investigator all the way up until the time I was hired. And then, uh, so that was my um, my marching orders was to, okay, we've got the trust and safety team set up. Now we want the investigations team to match it and did that for, let's see, was that maybe three, three and a half years. And then, um, after that I did some contracting work, uh, for about nine months with Synchrony Financial on, uh, helping onboard, um, threat tell vendors and incorporating threat intelligence into their business model to combat fraud, and because they they hold a lot of, they supply the credit for a lot of back or other companies, you know, right? And, private label cards, right? Yeah. yeah. So um, did that, and then as a contractor, which was a unique experience, and then at the time I uh, was wanting something full time, and, and um, I interviewed with them, and then I also interviewed with Yahoo. And they both offered uh, positions because I knew people over at Yahoo, some good friends. I ended up taking that position uh, in the summer of 2016, then was with Yahoo all the way up until the summer. It's funny to me to think that you were with Yahoo almost twice as long as StubHub, just because you know of where I was working and where you were working, uh, we were a lot more aligned. Uh, so it seemed like you were you know, it's step up so much longer, but uh, you did you know, a lot of big things at, at Yahoo as well. And I think we'll talk about those in, in a future episode because while they were related, uh, they weren't as connected to financial crimes and financial fraud. You know, unfortunately, there's a lot of cyber crimes that happen on various platforms and others that, you know, we really need people like you who are willing to you know, do the work and do the investigations and actually put, you know, some of these people in prison and give them consequences. I think that one of the biggest reasons why financial fraud online has just exploded in the last few years, and there are several reasons, but one of them is there's no consequences, right? There really haven't been a lot of consequences unless, you know, it's for PVP or unemployment fraud against the government, but even then. Uh, and so, you know, we see there just being more and more and more people going to this side and, you know, committing crime. And it's a lot of it is, well, you know, it could be maybe they were committing other crimes, you know, street crimes or others. And, you know, if they were, there was a greater chance of being, you know, arrested and also a greater chance of uh, spending more time in prison, even if they you know, were arrested than financial fraud. And so without a deterrence, without thinking, wow, I can steal how much and never have to worry about somebody knocking on my door, like, let's go. And that's been very frustrating for me. Frustrating for a lot of people. Well, yeah, we were just talking a little bit ago because 
you know, throughout my time at um, MRC, as well as, you know, I uh, worked with Card Not Present for quite a while and was in charge of the conference content there for their Card Not Present Expo that they had until COVID. I kind of felt like, and I really tried hard not to parade you around, but I often would say, I would love for you to do a presentation because, you know, sometimes companies who are newer to online uh, fraud are saying, you know, we really want to prosecute these people you know, how do we do it? Or, well, we tried that. We talked to our field office and we gave them a case, but they just didn't understand it or they didn't have the time. So we just decided to put all of our eggs in the prevention basket. And while there are other companies and and honestly, they're the the biggest ones in the world that do have investigation departments within their ecosystem of fraud and trust and safety. A lot of them are either big behemoths and they can't talk uh, or the people who are running them now aren't the people who started them in the first place. But the fact that the biggest companies have found that that's an important component um, should mean something to everyone else. But I feel like no matter how many, and you did incredible presentations at you know, countless conferences that I asked you to speak at and it just never caught on. And I'm like, gosh, was I like, what the heck? So maybe first we should talk about, you know, what you did as, you know, at StubHub specifically because you were mostly focused on financial crimes then, um, and well, uh, online financial crimes. And then there's some pretty exciting outcomes that uh, you actually just got to learn about. It's funny, I knew about them, but I assumed you knew about them already. Yeah, didn't know um, about it. I know, so we'll share that too. But, you know, we talked a little bit about the difference between, you know, being on the public sector and the private sector last time. But uh, when you went to StubHub, what were kind of some of your priorities in knowing that you were building out this team to be that kind of that one-two punch, right? I mean, for whatever came through or, you know, all that of wanting to ultimately get these guys. When I first came on board, it was, okay, how do we set it up the team to be similar to a police department's unit or, you know, a federal government's investigative unit? And then what are those priorities? And, you know, the having the right type of people, the having access to um, specific information that would be that would contribute to your investigation, and then are you allowed to share that information with law enforcement, and how accurate is that information as well? Can it be reproduced um, if it's open source information that you've pulled? Um, is it internal information? And, you know, is it we, well, we think this is what happened? Or do we know this is what happened? Um, because when you start into this road, your reputation in your product that you're giving or marketing to law enforcement will speak volumes going forward. Because you're always need, it's always hard to get the foot in the door, but you need to make sure once you do have that foot in the door, and you make sure that case is fully supported from what they need, what they're asking, and that when that information gets put into a um, prosecutorial setting, is it going to stand up to cross examination? And so, you know, there's a lot that goes in there into all that. But then once you've done it one time with that unit or that investigator or that prosecutor, and they've seen that you're invested in that outcome through the entire process, then they going forward or during, if it's a long case, they'll see, okay, hey, X company is, you know, they're really invested in this. They, you know, they're, they're not letting this thing go. They're doing everything we've been asking. Then they'll start putting in more manpower or more time and energy into that. Um, and then it's easier to go the second time back to that well or the third or the fourth. Um, I know that we did that with, um, in Manhattan, you know, we had a, very successful case and it was a big case and then we went back a little time later with another case that wasn't quite so big but because they had worked with us and respected us from the first case they were willing to take that second case when probably normally wouldn't have hit their thresholds it was a good outcome for us as well um with that case and and they got some stats from it too but you know it's you know it's really important to you know you have all those, all your ducks in a row that whatever you're putting out 
into their ecosystem is, you know, it's been looked at both ways, multiple different ways, and you've got the, um, it'll stand up to scrutiny. Uh, so that was one of probably my most important things of when I was setting this thing up is that um, knowing that relationships are so important in making these types of investigations have successful outcomes and can be built upon. How do you maintain those uh, successful um, uh, relationships with multiple different agencies? Right. Well, and that makes complete sense because, you know, they have lots of cases on their, you know, on their plate and need to have, oh, I wouldn't necessarily say a big bow on it, but, you know, they need to be able to trust and you need to be able to build that credibility that you've verified that all of these instances are all connected and here's how we've verified that and you know we've made sure that if it does go to trial that a defense attorney can't poke holes into how we got this right that we can provide all this proof all the way through and if you provide them a case and they take your word for it and then it goes to trial and they lose well then it's lost you know resources it's you know also egg on their face well yeah it you know and so i think it's similar it really is similar to you know building internal relationships inside your company too, right? Like continually providing more for the other party than they expect and making sure that they know that they can rely on you so that the next time, you know, or it maybe it's, there's not a case in their district next time, but they all know each other, right? So, you know, being able to say, Hey, this is, you know, this, this team knows what they're doing. Cause I have worked with, um, merchants in the past that have tried to get cases to secret service or FBI, and they really don't know what they're doing and, and they're doing their best. But unfortunately, like the secret service and FBI just don't have time to tell them what they need to do or what they need and everything, you know, in the order and everything. And so then it falls through. And usually once that falls through, then the kind of the, thought process on the merchant side is, well, I guess it, it doesn't matter to them. And it's like, well, that's not the case. It's just that, I mean, I, I would one day, and I don't know, we should have this conversation another time, but uh, I've been really feeling like the last year or so, there's just, su- I can make such a big case for having a dedicated branch of uh, federal law enforcement, at least in the US. I know that um, the EU and UK are kind of doing something similar-ish to this. They're putting a lot more resources um, from the government level into you know, accountability and all that um, towards criminals. But um, I'd like to see a dedicated federal law enforcement agency in the US just focused on internet crimes. Because right now, you know, it's a part of Secret Service, right? If there's money involved, it's a part of the FBI. If there's, you know, this or that involved, it can be a part of DHS or, you know, other or local law enforcement, right? But because there are so many different agencies and different pieces. And those agencies also often have to prioritize like physical violent threats or other things. They can't spend as much time on these things. I don't know if you've got any quick thoughts on that, if that's, you know, way off base or not. I'm sure, you know, they're obviously it could go wrong quickly. It'd have to be, you know, led by, I don't know, I nominate Eric Bowles to be part of that. (laughs) I don't um, don't want to take that. Um, (laughs) Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think it's going to stay with multiple different agencies. Um, I know that's somewhat what they tried to think of with DHS when that got created, um, that it was going to be, you know, somehow a central area or uh, i had them on the podcast last year talking about that yeah you know it it didn't work out that way didn't quite fall in the way they wanted to and sometimes that's um certain agencies not wanting to give up their little piece of or their big piece of the pie Mm -hmm. um and then also you know it's if everybody gave it all up and put it into dhs well then that's budgets that are getting severely you know slashed also that's you know, rewriting a whole lot of U.S. code um, that would take that responsibility away from Secret Service or from the FBI or from, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, it that just doesn't happen in the government. But the downside is there's no accountability, right? Like we're still, <laughs> well, not no, but there's just less. Um, so that is a challenge. But well, you need to know how to, you know, uh, navigate those waters of, okay, you know, which, which case would work 
best for which agency? Who's got the better you know, relationships in Nigeria or South Africa or Southeast Asia or, you know, those types of things, which field office has set up certain task forces that are focused on specifically one type of fraud or criminal activity. And they are successful that, you know, you need to be able to be able to find out that information and get plugged into it, um, you know, to make a difference. If you're a regular listener of Fraudology, you've heard me talk about SPEC. Not only does their no-code platform let you instantly assemble the fraud solutions that you need to stay ahead of bad actors, but SPEC's long list of integrations is always growing, empowering you to orchestrate your data to create customized customer journeys. SPEC lets you stay ahead of fraud while enabling great customer experiences for your legitimate users. Request your personalized demo of Specs Trust Cloud today at specprotected.com. That's www.specprotected.com. Or you can visit their website by clicking the link in today's show notes. As you're talking about it, it makes you think of, you know, the the reason why I loved chargebacks so much when I was a merchant and like, bear with me. Cause I know it's so different, but you know, the chargeback rule system is not fair and it's not easy to navigate, right? It's not fair for online companies, but that doesn't just because the, the game is difficult doesn't mean that it can't be won. And that's why I enjoyed it so much because I was able to figure out like, Oh, well, you know, if you do this over that, you know, and, and it's not easy, right? And so I think that goes back to why don't more companies do this? Well, because yeah, it does take time. But once you put in the right resources and do the right work, it is so rewarding. And um, that's the piece that, you know, still to this day, I've been, you know, when I set out to have my uh, consultancy be solely focused on chargebacks, like I, for some reason, thought people would be like, oh, well, if there's a way to do it, let's do it. Well, there already had been so much um, thoughts around, well, it's not fair, so we're just not going to try anything. It's like, but look, I did it over here and and look at how amazing it was and I did it over there and over there, you know. And I think it's the same thing as just because it's not easy doesn't mean that it's not doable and that it's not, and that it's not the right thing to do. I think that's the bottom line because we see it all the time, right? When you're just focusing on the prevention side and there's no accountability at the end, uh, there's no mechanism to say, here's why you shouldn't mess with my company. It's just going to continually be a game of whack-a-mole. Right. I mean, you're not, you're never going to stop them from attempting the fraud, just being preventive. That is one tool. Yes, that should be used, but it's in my experience for the last 15 years with this is that, you know, it's not going to stop them just because they weren't successful on Monday. They'll come back on Tuesday. They're going to come back on Wednesday. They're going to figure out, you know, the fraud settings that you have on your tooling and figure out ways to get around it. Whether that's, you know, you're allowing only, you know, maybe it's a wild, wild west and you're allowing 500 accounts to be set up with one IP address. And then, oh, wait, maybe that's not smart. You cut it in half. And it doesn't take them that long to figure out, okay, wait a moment, something was changed. Oh, and they come back in a week and they figured it out. And so they are doing 249. And then, you know, you keep reducing those things, but their attempts have never stopped and they're going to keep doing it. You know, where, you know, if you can go after them for the successful stuff as well as the potential fraud you know that makes a nice big picture uh, for law enforcement you know and it also goes to the point of if you're doing investigations or if you have a dedicated investigations team and they're doing it the right way you're getting wins that you can use for either your shareholders or your board of directors of hey you know something popped in the news are we prepped have we been doing anything with that whether it's a certain type of ransomware or malware or you know what are we doing in regards to pig butchering or you know these types of things and you know, your executives can go to your investigations team, say, hey, what have we done over the last couple of years with X, Y, or Z? And, you know, that happened to me a bunch of times at Yahoo. 
and we can go back and say, okay, here's the last, you know, here's eight investigations that we had. Here's the successful ones. Here's the ones where they were pitched and they're still ongoing. And that was able to do a lot of brand uh, recognition and saving face sometimes in regards to no, we've been active in this. We're we're not just sitting back and not, you know, looking and trying to mitigate these things or, you know, investigate them and get them successfully pitched to law enforcement. And, you know, and that has done wonders for board of director meetings, you know, or, you know, when shareholders are wanting to take a company and, you know, make them accountable for, well, what are you doing? Are you being responsible with our money? Are you being responsible for, you know, our data, you know, that type of thing? Yeah, being able to say, oh, way before this was on the news and you saw it, we knew about it and we were ahead of it. And that's a good point. And that having that final lever of investigations, you know, post-transaction or, you know, post account investigations isn't just about bringing it to law enforcement, though that is, you know, a, a big part of it and and should be, but it also is, you know, yeah, to give peace of mind to those that are in charge of your business, uh, that you're on top of things, right? And that you're keeping the company protected, especially if you're a platform and you know, people can use your platform for many different things, um, you know, whether it's social media or email or others where there's user generated content and saying, oh, well, we're on top of this and this, or here's what we already have on this, being able to get ahead of it. I think that's a really good point and gives peace of mind, but also provides... Um, sort of provides umbrellas for C-suite levels. And, you know, it, and it's, you never know when you're needing, when, I mean, we had... Um, you know, counsel, you know, in-house counsel that would say, hey, what do you have on this? Because I have a meeting with X, Y, and Z next week or in two weeks. And then we would, you know, do our searches and we would say, okay, we've had this, we had this, we had this, you know, this arrest, that arrest, you know, these many investigations. And he'd be like, great, and go. And then it would turn into a good, a really good PR uh, meeting for the company for the council and the legal side of things. And um, even though we weren't in with legal, the other thing is, is with these within with good investigations teams. And if you set them up, right, their investigations can also provide back to the uh, fraud mitigation side of the house or the trust and safety side of the house with Intel on, Hey, we noticed this is going on and it, you know, it's being done in this way. And then they can fine tune their tools um, to get a hold of it, mitigate it, you know, stop it. Or, hey, there, there's a hole in the system here. And we've seen it being leveraged this way, where, you know, oftentimes your third party vendors don't really have the time to do that, or they're going to charge you, you know, a huge arm and a leg for that type of service um, when you could have it in-house. And in the long run, that in-house capability will solve a lot of different things for you versus outside vendor is just solving one. You know, they're, they, they're not going to come back to you for, you know, and give you PR wins or they're not going to, because that's not what they're set up for. Right. Well, yeah. And in a way, and I'm not saying this about all of them, but I know a few of them that they don't actually want to provide root cause information on how to stop those attempts because then they don't look as good, right? Like if I, it frustrates me, but there are some companies, there's even some fraud managers I know who allow some things to get through just so that they can come in and save the day. Or, you know, will we charge on attempts? Well, you know, if we, if we tell them, wait, this person's, you know, if you just did this, the, there wouldn't be as many attempts. Well, then there won't be as much you know, money or reliance on us or whatever. And um, that may also be unintentional, but um, you know, something, that I, uh, something that I learned from the last time you were on the podcast that actually surprised me quite a bit was how much you saw the attempts at the upfront really stop once arrests were made. Um, you know, whether that was, and I know a lot of it was because those people were 
no longer there to, you know, do those attempts. But I think there's often a thought that, well, you know, if we arrest a couple of them, well, then we're sort of, and yeah, you're always going to have more people to go off of. But um, for one of the bigger cases, if you could kind of walk through, you know, one of those, and then what you saw happen, you know, once arrests were made, that actually led to a lot less attempts and actually helped the, you know, the fraud mitigation side quite a bit. I think that might be that that was mind blowing to me. So the um, that was when we were at when I was at StubHub, um, and we did we uh, StubHub had had an issue at the time where they could not um, they weren't scanning um, PDFs, and we were we made some technological improvements to the system, and so then we were suddenly getting new data feeds of when a ticket was stolen from StubHub through fraud, of course, and then was being reloaded back onto the marketplace for sale. And we had never been able to have that ability to correlate the two tickets uh, necessarily. And we found out, so when we got all this new information, we started doing an analysis of it. And we identified, okay, here's the top 15 accounts that are doing this or the top 25 and started, okay, let's see, are there any connections between those accounts, that type of thing. And then what we found was that there were five individuals that had accounts on the, at StubHub that were uploading a large number, if not almost 100% of their tickets they were selling had been stolen if, uh, from us, from the original uh, seller. And four of the five were high school friends and college buddies. And then the fifth one was a fiance of one of them. And they were all based in the greater New York, Manhattan area. We started doing an investigation and, you know, I'd already set up some good uh, inroads and um, with people within the Manhattan DA's office and NYPD um, because New York City is, you know, a high target area for, you know, ticket fraud. Oh, yeah. With Broadway shows and sports and Madison Square Garden and absolutely. So, you know, like so prior to that was one of those things that I set up with team was, okay, let's where are we losing money the most? What cities, what countries, that type of thing. And then I got buy into, okay, I, I flew out there. I met with people. I had sit downs. I was like, okay, you know, did a lot of prep work for when a case like this would come around. And um, normally a case like this would have gone maybe to the FBI or Secret Service, um, but we went with the Manhattan DA's office and um, they put a lot of effort and emphasis on that case and a lot of manpower behind it that when it all came to an, um, to a head, um, it, one, it was... The masterminds behind the case were Russians, of course, about four of them, I believe, that were in Russia. And there were spots, uh, London was involved, Toronto was involved, uh, the US. Um, I think there was one other foreign country. I can't remember off the top of my head because it's been a while. Um, and, you know, we were all just, okay, waiting for, okay, when were they going to move on this? And, and normally, once you start involving foreign countries like the Royal Canadian Mounted Police or uh, the City of London Police, which were the ones on the UK side that were tackling this, you've got to go through the MLAT process with federal government and, you know, how, to, how does information within the US go to that country? a lot of going through treaties and which can take a year, two years more to do that stuff. Well, the Manhattan DA's office did a completely end run around that. And they actually took their case and prosecutors went over to city of London, met with their, their equals over there and said, here's a gift. We're working this case. Here's what's, here's all the evidence that entails what's going on in London or in Toronto. And um, would you like to work it with us? And we'll come and testify if you ever need to on this information. 
And uh, so they were able to get them involved and bought into it real quick, um, even though it was not like the normal way you 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 do did these things. Right, right. And but then, because they'd already created those relationships too, I'm sure, and because they'd you know done this before or they got buy-in from other places, they were able to you know move a little faster or have. Well, also, when you have like the the attorney, the main prosecutor for Manhattan is over there going here, you know, it, it's like, <laughs> right. okay, you know, you sit back and you take notice sometimes. Well, right. Yeah. Well, and StubHub gave them, you know, the files and everything yes. with a bow on it with as much information as you possibly could give them with everything you had. And then their investigators did the same thing and added to it. So by the time... They oh, and we were constantly over. in that loop with them helping right. along the way um, with providing new information. Um, did they, you know, when they needed to understand how our systems were working with certain fraud detection, right. you know, we were there to explain it and, you know, in give them a uh, an expert uh, review of okay this is how you know fraud scoring works here's how it goes through the steps you know those types of things and then you know and there's always a bit of luck with you know these types of investigations and one of those was one of the russians traveled to barcelona uh on a vacation and uh and the manhattan da's office had um an analyst that saw that he was traveling, which then got a red letter notice issued by Interpol to Spain and Spain would actually action on it. Well, that hit um, and they arrested him early July and um, the news started breaking internationally that this guy had, was arrested and supposedly he had some high contacts within the Russian government and they were starting to make some waves. Well, then when that started to happen, we knew or the law enforcement within 48 hours came up with all the plans and all the arrest notices or warrants in New Jersey, Manhattan, um, Toronto, London, and a, one other place. And they all executed it on the same day, multiple time zones, the whole bit, and wrapped up the entire crew. And back to your original question about or wanting me to elaborate on it was up to that point we were you know don't hold me to it but we were seeing roughly 50 million dollars in fraud attempts on the platform prior to that arrest those arrests in what time frame in a year wow yeah just from that group well we didn't know it was just well, that you could tie oh right oh well, right total okay, after okay. you know in, in totality per in that year, we were seeing $50 million in fraud attempts. Once those arrests happened, within that week, we saw almost like an 80 to 90% reduction in fraud attempts. And that was just, that was seismic for us. Um, and then from what I understood that that lasted almost a good, that reduction or targeting of StubHub was a good, for a good year, it stayed down. And more than likely because they had to rebuild infrastructure and then they were also targeting other other areas or other companies uh, that um, weren't so dialed in on, you know, combating this in multiple different ways with investigations teams. Well, right. And they realized, oh, there's actually consequences when we go after SubHub, whereas if we go after some of their competitors with some of the same uh, tactics, there aren't. Right. And um, I think that's part of it. Do you I, mean, I know you guys did some analysis, but was a bulk of that reduction all because of that one group? And you realized, wow, that one group was doing a lot more than we thought. Or was it a combination of that along with word getting out of don't mess with StubHub because they'll prosecute and because there's so few companies that prosecute, they can just turn to someone else. I mean, I know it's hard to know. Right. But. My analysis of it is that because it was such a quick, you know, reduction and it was only with, I mean, and it was within a week that it was because they, that group had it so fine tuned how they were doing the fraud because 
yeah, it was being orchestrated in Russia, but it was also using Vietnam. It was, they had the resellers already in place. You know, they were doing a lot of that stuff that it was suddenly huge chunks of that org was suddenly off the board and they had to redo it again. You know, they had to, you know, get it all set back up, let alone, I mean, you had one or two Russians that had been arrested that were some of the masterminds. You had, you know, the Manhattan reseller group was their top reseller group. You know, you know, it's, you know, they lost a huge chunk of money as well from it, uh, from those arrests with seizures and asset forfeitures. Um, so, you know, it, I think it was um, that one group. Now, I do think that probably going, f- you know, as things morphed, that it's the criminal infrastructure is more um, segmented um, to where you don't just have one group being that controlled over all of it. Right, right. Where you now have, I mean, it's all, it's a marketplace where you can go in and you can, you can just, I'm going to hire this service and it's going to be setting up accounts. I'm going to hire this other service for X, Y, or Z to be done to, you know, get this complete, this fraud all the way through. I'm not having to set it up all myself. Yeah. The fraud as a service marketplace, especially in the last five years is boomed. Right. And it's not just for fraud. It's for spamming. It's for malware. It's for ransomware. It's for, you know, you can, you can find what, if, if you don't have the expertise or the bodies to do X, you can you can pay for it really easily and get very quality work product or it could be done very well and you suddenly have okay a great shell kit to deploy or whatever right so you take these players off the board and chances are they were providing some of those pieces for other fraudsters too and now those fraudsters that were benefiting and profiting off of subhub they now can't complete you know their cycle of fraud because that piece is missing which makes perfect sense yeah, and even with it like being now a you know more dispersed it doesn't mean you shouldn't still be going after Oh, yeah. Those things, because you never know when that one case is going to have linkage to, you know, a major server farm or, Mm. you know, a, you know, whatever it is to where then suddenly it's like someone feels some real pain over, you know, in Eastern Europe and Africa or Southeast Asia or wherever. Yeah. That it's like, oh, wow. Um, that made a complete shift in something. And, you know, and we had one of those type cases where uh, with Yahoo, with um, BECs and account takeovers uh, for fraud. And even though it wasn't Yahoo that was the victim of the fraud, but we, we our platform was being leveraged for that, that we were able to tie a bunch of that to certain individuals over in South Africa and Nigeria. Well, we had good relations with some secret service contacts over there and you know, they made arrests and some of these people were high up in black acts, which, you know, is a very terrorist, you know, criminal organization that has, you know, I mean, they have people everywhere, you know, and they're very violent and, you know, some of our cases took down some, you know, big names in their org. Um, so, yeah, you never know where an investigation is going to take you. Well, and talk about the payoff, right? Like not just in feeling like justice has been served in some way, which I think a lot of us on the mitigation side often don't really feel, but you also get more insight, right? I mean, I'll just call back, you know, if anyone didn't listen to the episode from last year, when you talked about one of the cases that you tracked back to actually two rival street gangs in Chicago that were working together to fund their war against, you know, their the street guys, you know, on the street, they were warring against each other and, and killing each other's people. But at the top, they were working together to fund that. I'm oversimplifying it, of course. But, you know, so knowing that, A, you're proving and that also helps, you know, explain things and, and is a good story for your CEO to share, right? 
or, you know, internally in meetings of not only did we stop fraud by X percent and, you know, all those mitigations and attempts and everything and, and all that, but we also helped, you know, take down these really terrible terrorists or like the, or to say, this is what our company is funding when we don't do a good job at the mitigation to really tie those pieces together. Because if you don't, if you don't have that investigations piece, if you don't have that piece to not only hold accountable, but also better understand, then you're really just, you're always going to be, you know, it's like running on a treadmill, right? Like you're always going to be running in place and not really get anywhere. And I would almost say that at some point you're going to start falling behind. Yes. Because... You know, if you're just going the mitigation route and you're not trying to do things internally and you're just, okay, I'm going to hire someone external to you know, do things um, to the set third up. third-party system. Yeah, that those third-party vendors and systems that you're you know, bringing on board and you're paying for, over time, and it's just the way the market is, the price for those things are going to keep going up and up and up. You know, it's not going, you're not going to have that sweetheart deal when you first onboarded them, you know, that lasts, lasts for three years. Well, then suddenly you're going to have a huge, you know, markup, you know, at year four. And I'm, and I'm not saying that that's, that huge markup is not a valid markup for that third party vendor. If that's where you're going to put all your eggs in, you know, you're, you know that, uh, you know, every year you're going to have this amount of money that's going out, you know, those vendors. And it's going to just keep going up, right? Because, and a lot of times you're paying for the same attempts from the same groups over and over and over again, not to mention the amount of money that you are losing that is getting through that they've identified, right? They're not going to keep trying if they don't have some to get through. So it's so if you can set up a good investigations team that is not just solely focused on prosecutions, um, but is also wrapping up intelligence into their investigations and then putting it back into your systems, you're killing a couple birds with that one stone. Um, where if in the grander scheme of things, you're getting more bang for that buck of building out a good, solid investigations team that has the wherewithal and the support to tackle multiple different um, investigations. And whether that and with multiple different outcomes, you're, you're making your ecosystem and your company a stronger company in the end. Where if you're just going to, you know, I'm going to hire this threat vendor and they've got a great product, but I'm just going to hire that and just keep throwing money at that. Well, you're just throwing, you're throwing money at the problem and they're, you're not getting a whole, you're only getting one, one win out of it. Not, you're not able to leverage that in multiple different ways to, you know, support what you and your company I'm assuming it would be wanting to support. Well, yeah. And you're, you know, because you're saying that not all investigations that your teams did at any of the companies were turned into prosecution. Sometimes it was, hey, we can look at this from a different angle. We have more time to dig in. You know, when when you're just looking at fraud attempts or, you know, the fraud that came through and chargebacks and things like that, and you're looking at root cause analysis, there's only so much that you can learn about that order to try to prevent it in the first place. When you're able to have a dedicated team that knows how to use OSINT and knows how to do all these, you know, really interesting things and, and use additional tools too, to be able to find out even more about them and how they're connected and what they're doing and all that, you can identify even other ways to prevent them in the first place. Uh, using that same fraud vendor, just, oh, we can do this rule or that rule, or we can, imp you know, input this or that. Um, and so you're getting more of the full picture, right? It's, I mean, I constantly talk in analogies and in a way it's like, you know, weeding instead of weeding and getting the root out, right? You're just mowing the lawn. Well, how many times do new weeds pop around, you know, because you're now germinating those seeds too. So that's, you know, one way of looking at it. As far as the payoff, right? I mean, not, and obviously we've talked about the payoff in other ways, right? To feed the... Yeah, we're about to talk about the icing on the cake. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. The icing on the cake, right? Because you already have the cake and it's already sweet. You've already, you guys built quite the 
infrastructure and multi-layered trust and safety team to really be badass. And it, you know, had to do with you and Robert and our very good friend, Ryan, and several other people. You know, I also had uh, Neil McCoureg on the podcast recently and uh, other people that, you know, and there's other people that you know, you've worked with that I know that are just, it's incredible what you guys built. And, but investigations was one very important component that the whole company couldn't have been as good at this as they were without it. So in addition to all the things we've talked about, as far as the, some of the payoffs and stuff, there was also restitution and there was also seizures. And you and Robert talked about, you know, one of the cases where you guys ended up with a boat or something like that. <laughs> it was seized. <laughs> yeah, we, the Secret Service seized a boat and, um, you know, from one of the fraudsters. And there'd been a, like, when we were at StubHub, um, and not talking about the big Russian case. We had one case where we had uh, restitution in the amount of, I think it was uh, around $200,000, where, you know, when that came, when that came back into a, uh, to our accounting, you know, in grand scheme of things, that might have paid for one or two investigators for a year, their salary. Not that we were expecting that restitution check, but, you know, it's, you know, it does happen. It's, but it's, you know, you get that, those little wins or that, that icing or cherry on the cake is because of the investigations team and what they were doing and that they kept following up with whichever prosecutor's office or you know, U.S. attorney's office. And, um, and then for the, the secret, the Russian case, um, which you found out, before, you know, since I was no longer <laughs> at the company. I did, but I thought, I figured you knew that. But that was a, they ended up getting a seven figure restitution check, which blows my mind. I mean, that would have seven figures that would have paid for the investigations team's budget for three, four years, you know, and that was just one case. And the case took a year and a half, but you know, it's like there's, that's huge. Yeah. It really is. It's amazing. And that was one reason why I wanted to, you know, make sure that we talked about that part because, you know, and that's not something that you, I would necessarily recommend anyone lead with, right? Like we want to create an investigations department to recuperate our money because that can take years as it did um, in this case. But there were several cases where, you know, if it's coming in, that's something. And it's good to say, hey, we're getting something back. But at the same time, I think there's just this misunderstanding that, oh, it's just money out and we don't get any benefit from it. Well, not only are you getting those incremental benefits of more intelligence, more information, you're you able to put consequences on them and everything else, but then there can also be over time some pretty hefty checks sent to the company that can just go straight to, you know, straight to operations budgets, which well, what other department does that? Or it'll cover your threat vendor tool. Right. Your, the, your, that bill for how many years, um, those types of things. So, you know, it does happen and it, it happens more often when you've got a dedicated team that is following up on those things where you're, you're letting that prosecutor's office know that, hey, you know, where, where's the restitution on this? You know, we're, we're still, we're wanting restitution. The X company is wanting restitution for this. And that's responding to emails. That's, res- you know, you know, keeping up with the court documents that are needed because you need that prosecutor to be, to constantly keep going back and saying, okay, hey, we're checking their their financial records and hey, they have, you know, they have X amount of money and they should be paying. The court has said you need to pay the X. Um, so then- Or seizing their items and selling them at auction. Well, and as you mentioned at the beginning, you're, uh, you know, because of a reduction in force at Yahoo, um, I'm not gonna, you know, uh, say if I think that was a good decision of theirs or not. But, um, you know, some of these decisions are not, are not, well, most of them are not personal, obviously. No, no, um, not, never. 
And especially in your case, I know it wasn't because I know everyone that's worked with you give you glowing recommendations and then some. Um, but you're kind of at, you know, an impasse. And um, so I'm, you know, obviously like with everyone, I'll put your a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes for people to reach out to you um, either to absolutely um, just to connect or to pick your brain or well, actually, I always say if you're going to pick my brain, you should pick your payment method, but that's, well, I don't always say that to everyone else, but usually when you become a consultant, picking your brain becomes code for, I want to ask questions for free. And I'm like, I only do that for my friends. Um, but yeah, so, you know, you're kind of at an impasse, right? And you're uh, making decisions on what's next. You are qualified to do so many things and you are such a huge asset. Um, but what would you, you know, what would you like to put out there as far as what you're looking to do next? I still want to make a difference. Uh, so I, um, whether that's full time or consulting, I'm open to, you know, a new, whatever is new out there. Um, if it's in the fraud world, that's great. If it's a larger ecosystem, I'm also open to that. Um, where, you know, something along the lines of a Yahoo, where you're having user content and, um, you know, protecting your users. I keep flashing back to Tron with that, that type of reference. But um, <laughs> I know that I have uh, a lot of value I can still add to this. Um, and whether that's how to fine tune the investigations team or set one up or, hey, do you need someone to, you know, build it out and lead it? That's, that's great. Uh, if it's how to, you know, incorporate intelligence and, you know, that type of uh, information into your product and your mitigation, that's another way that I could see myself uh, adding value. So, yeah, I'm just looking for new adventures and uh, see what we can do. Well, and you have so many of those relationships, you know, across the world with law enforcement already, you have a great reputation with them on a lot of things, whether it's financial fraud or business email compromise or, you know, pig butchering or, you know, all of these different things that I just know that there are so many companies that could benefit from your wealth of knowledge and experience. But, you know, you're not uh, as showy as some of uh, those of us who are, you know, loud and talk more and, you know, we're a little more noticed in a room. So, um, you know, if I can at least introduce, you know, my several hundred listeners to you and your skill sets um, and your knowledge. I wanted to do that. And um, I always learn so much from you. So thank you so much for coming to the podcast again. And um, we will set up another time sometime soon to talk about, you know, some other parts of your career that aren't as fun, but are necessary to talk about and something that, um, you know, several people have, have specifically asked to, to learn about. So um, I look forward to it. Me too. Well, thank you again, Eric, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.